lot of us, summer means road trips, which also means you're probably looking for good things to listen to in the car. One of Out There's sponsors is a podcast called Out Travel the System. Out Travel the System is brought to you by Expedia, and its mission is to inspire and inform about travel. That can mean anything from building your bucket list to taking concrete steps to take that next trip when the time is right. The podcast finds people who are passionate about travel, including a commercial airline pilot, a woman who travels pretty much year-round, and a man who wants to have visited every country in the world by the end of this year. When it comes to inspiration, Out Travel the System is also giving a voice to people who love their hometowns and want to share them with travelers, or people who love, say, lake or beach life in the winter. Out Travel the System is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. On today's episode, we talk with the author of a book called Horse Crazy. Horse Crazy is part memoir and part cultural exploration. It's a love letter to an animal. It's a story about the struggle to belong. And it's a deep dive into the fascinating things that horses and the humans connected to them can teach us about ourselves and our society. I'm joined now by Horse Crazy author Sarah Maslin Neer. So how did the idea for this book come about? I have always been a secret, obsessive horse person. Emphasis on secret, because as a reporter for the New York Times, I cover really hard corners of the earth, really difficult subjects, uh, some of the grittiest. And I was really concerned that if I ever outed myself as a horse person, that if people knew that so much of my heart and mind was filled with ponies, I wouldn't be taken seriously doing my job. And I was chatting with a friend about wanting to write a book. And I told him that the only subject I wanted to write about was horses, uh, but I couldn't for the reasons I explained. And he said really something important. He said, Sarah, passion translates. Whatever the subject is, readers just want to understand passion. And if you're passionate about it, that's the important part. Everywhere I've gone around the world as a reporter for the New York Times, I realized that when I was finished reporting the story I was sent there to do, I'd whip out another notebook and go find the horses. So when I was in Rajasthan, I found a woman who's managed to smuggle rare Indian horses to America. Hint, she smuggles their semen in her pockets on Air India flights. (laughs) When when I was... uh, Traveling around uh, doing stories in New York, I found fox hunters who ape the rules of aristocracy in Westchester, galloping around on horseback, and a woman who galloped away from a failed marriage. When I was in Chincoteague following the steps of Marguerite Henry, the wonderful children's horse book author, I found two little girls who bought a wild horse from an auction only to set her back free. And I realized that they're horse people just as much as I am, even though they've never even stroked her auburn nose. 
They own what it means to be a horse, which is freedom. And that became the threads I pulled together to write this book, because I had been doing it all along. You know, you delve into a lot of these kind of cultural phenomena related to horses, um, phenomena that I think reveal a lot more about us as humans than than about horses, really. And one of the ones that I found particularly interesting was this chapter that you have on briar horse shows. And maybe for, for listeners who, who are not uh, horse lovers themselves, briar horses are these these toy horses, these little plastic horses that, I mean, I remember playing with them endlessly as a kid and I would, you know, make make little saddles out of bits of fabric and have my dollhouse dolls ride them and things like that. And to me, they were a toy, but um, but that, that, you know, that eventually I grew out of um, when I got older. But you write about this, this just fascinating thing of briar horse shows. Tell us about that. Willow, why do you find it strange that adults cart hundreds of 12-inch playthings around the country to compete them in 4-H clubs as if they're living creatures? What what's so strange about that? <laughs> I know, right? We, we all we all do that, right? We all <laughs> uh, It is a fascinating phenomenon. So, Briar model horses are acetate horses at a 1 to 8 scale of the real thing and they're quite realistic but they are plastic and here I found a world in which adults predominantly though there are children drive them around the country to compete them against each other and lest you think they're competing models they painted right some artistic endeavor they are competing store-bought horses against store-bought plastic horses and this isn't a small phenomenon I should add 30,000 people come to the annual Briar Horse Convention at the Kentucky Horse Park where the Derby is run. So it's a real deal thing. I came in to that center in Leesport full of skepticism. I almost felt judgy. You know, what is this thing? How, how, how could people participate in this? And there in that room, I saw adults doing something that I don't let myself do as a grown-up anymore, which is play. It was pure play. And here were these people finding the same things that I find in living, breathing, fur-covered horses in these plastic animals. And they really appeal to people who can't access horses for financial reasons. Um, they still seem to have that draw. And I left that hall, I write in the book, feeling ashamed that I had come in with preconceptions and realizing at the end that those people, those adults playing with plastic horses were horse crazy in the same way that I was, that what they loved was what a horse can do for your soul, which is expand it. Well, and I was going to ask about that. The title of the book, of course, is is Horse Crazy. What does what does that term mean to you? It's a fascinating term because 
I don't think there's an equivalent dog crazy or cat crazy, right? If you look at a kitten or a dog, I like to say, you think like, oh, how cute. But when you look at a horse, you feel something. It's more akin to looking at a mountain vista or waves rolling in across the ocean. It tugs at something. And that to me speaks that horses are have come to embody something larger than just being these 1,200-pound creatures on hooves. Um, you know, you don't feel that way about a cow. Horse crazy is a global phenomenon. In America, it's actually predominantly female, a lot of the sport. And I look into that. My father, a Freudian therapist, would say this is uh, an example of young women wanting to dominate something large between their legs. And it goes into these atomistic, id-based feelings and impulses. But I think it's about power. On my own two legs, I'm just me. And given for more, I suddenly become formidable. And a little girl is probably the least formidable thing in our whole society. And here she is, able to control this wondrous beast and make them one with her. And that to me just sparks horse crazy. Well, and that actually leads into one of my other questions, because I think it's really fascinating that, and you go into this a bit in the book, I think it's really fascinating that in the U.S., riding is seen as a predominantly women's sport. I mean, leaving aside, let's say, rodeo and, um, and and ranches where horses are actually working, but just riding for the sake of riding is 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 very much seen as a women's thing uh, to do here. But that's not the case in other places around the world. I mean, you have a a trip to India in your book where you talk about the fact that that it's really like women really don't ride there. It's it's much more of a men's thing. So, how do these how do these cultural norms about like who gets to ride and what is the appropriate gender to ride? Like, how does that come about? It's more than gender. One of the subjects I really unpack deeply and, and the threads I pull out in Horse Crazy are who do horses belong to? For me, in examining my own passion for these animals, I realized a tremendous part of it was about passing. Passing as an all-American girl when I was the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, of an immigrant, a Jew who felt out of place in this sport that's of Kings and of Jackie Kennedy. And who was I? And I think I inserted myself, maybe shoehorned myself into this sport so deeply in an effort to pass. And that gave me a lens to examine the horse world in general. One of the stories I dig into deeply is the erased legacy of the black cowboy. One in four cowboys, Willow, were black in the American pioneer era, and they've been totally erased from the narrative by racism. As the great historian William Lauren Katz said to me, you, another Jew from Brooklyn, actually, who's a, a black cowboy historian, he said, if black people came into the American origin story, the cowboy story, they came under a whip and in chains. And that's not the America we wanted to remember. And they've been removed from that narrative. So in my book, I ride with the black cowboys of Texas and in Harlem and try to examine that. But the question you pose is fascinating. In 
different countries, it's a men's sport. Uh, in this country, certain aspects are seen as hopelessly female and derided because of it. But horses are incognizant of all of that. They have no concept of who they belong to. And in that, that way, they're deeply democratic. They belong to all of us. This concept of the black cowboys, I I found really interesting, um, and, and not least so because the way you the way you sort of find out about all of this is you stumble upon a black cowboy in New York City. Can you talk about that? Sure. So when I was in my early twenties, I was biking around the city, and I saw in the middle of the Harlem River of what I really thought was a mirage. I was like, "That can't be a little red barn underneath like a wastewater treatment plant and beside a mental institution." And so I biked across and threw my bicycle into a shrub and ran to the barn. And lo and behold, a little brown horse popped her head out. And that was my introduction to the New York City Riding Academy, which I just thought was a little riding school run by two ornery and lovable old folk. Turns out they were the founders of the New York City Black Rodeo, which had taken place for 20 years in Harlem. And they were evangelists for reinserting the black cowboy into the American story. Dr. Blair, don't call him George, he's Dr. <laughs> Blair to Sarah, and Mrs. Blair too. He said to me one day, I asked him, you know, what are we teaching at this riding academy? Because we just had three horses and 40 inner city children would come at a time and they would never ride because we couldn't mount them all up. And I said to Dr. Blair, what do we, what do we teach here at the New York City Riding Academy? And he said to me, Sarah, uh, do you know what a cowboy is? And I thought that was a rhetorical question, right? Who doesn't know what a cowboy is? The Marlboro man. And he said to me, Sarah, a cowboy is a black man. And actually etymologists, some believe that the very word cowboy speaks to the blackness of the people who had that profession first. Because in the era of its coinage, I think it's the late 1800s, early 1800s, you wouldn't call a white man a boy. It would be incredibly derogatory, but you had a house boy and you had a yard boy, and those were your slaves. And he said to me, Sarah, a cowboy is a black man. And the next thing he said, I'll remember for the rest of my life, he said, I'm not teaching children to ride here. I'm teaching them that there are different futures for them in this world, that they belong to much larger a part of the American story. He said, I'm not teaching them to ride, Sarah. I'm teaching them to dream. And that was incredibly powerful for me. And as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor whose people were literally erased from the planet, the figurative erasure of black people from the American and American equestrian story really felt a parallel and something that I wanted to help repair. Where are we heading with that? I mean, I think you hear now and again about about people like this. Um, who are trying to bring stories of black cowboys back into the narrative. Um, but I think for a lot of us, I mean, it's like you said, you picture a cowboy and you picture the Marlboro Man, you, you picture a white guy. So, how, like, where are we in this process? Or <laughs> is, there, is there hope for, <laughs> for, for, you know, getting, getting black people back into this narrative where they belong? There have been strides taken towards equity in the horse world, especially sparked by the Black Lives Matter conversations of the past summer. 
they have been painful conversations. Show jumping is an incredibly white sport. Uh, and there have been long discussions. Oh, it's because it's wealthy, but they're rich black people and they obviously don't feel welcome to participate uh, in the, sh the sport of show jumping. And so there have been a lot of conversations about inclusion that are happening now across the disciplines. A really interesting thing to me that I wish I had explored in my book and I didn't is black jockeys. So the first ever winner of the first ever Kentucky Derby was a black man and the trainer of that horse was a freed slave. And in wow. the early days of yeah, in the early days of American horse racing, people ran the horses they owned with the humans they owned on their backs. And Willow, when you walk into a plantation, you feel the blood that built those places, right? We are so deeply aware of the pain that the cotton industry was predicated on. But thoroughbred racing owes that same debt to black lives, and it has never had its moment of reckoning. When you go to Churchill Downs where the Derby is run, there's a statue of Secretariat, right? Everybody knows the Triple Crown winner, stretched out in a gallop in bronze with a a jockey on his back. And actually not far away is a statue very similar of Aristides, the first horse that won that first ever derby. But there's no rider on Aristides' back, and that's because that rider was a black man. Coming up on this episode, we'll talk about the connection between being a horse lover and being a journalist. But first, I often hear about people getting tattoos as a reminder of something important to them. Maybe it's a reminder that you are strong and capable and resilient. Maybe it's a reminder to stay present and stop worrying about the future too much. I've always liked the idea of a physical thing that can serve as your own secret pep talk, something to give you hope and courage. But I personally don't want a tattoo, so I've started wearing a ring. One of our sponsors is a company called Kalo. They make silicone rings designed for people with active, outdoorsy lifestyles. A lot of people wear them in lieu of metal wedding rings. For me, since I'm not married, I use mine as a personal reminder that things might turn out okay. That even when life gets rough, it's possible that everything will be fine. If you're looking for a ring that will hold up to all your adventures, check out Kalo. You can get 20% off your purchase at kalo.com slash out there. That's Q-A-L-O dot com slash out there. Your 20% discount will automatically be applied at checkout. Support for Out There also comes from Frost River. In the world of travel and adventure, it's easy to say, someday I'm going to do this or see that. But the folks at Frost River are challenging all of us to start seeking our somedays today. Frost River makes reliable bags, packs, totes, and adventure gear to help you find adventure in the everyday and start seeking your someday today. With sustainably sourced materials and solar-powered manufacturing facilities, Frost River creates every piece of gear by hand right here in the United States. 
They also offer repairs for their packs to try to get us away from throwaway culture. Whether your next adventure is a stroll through a local park or a backcountry camping trip, Frost River has sustainably made gear that's built to last. Stop waiting for your next adventure and start seeking your someday today at frostriver.com slash out there. That's frostriver.com slash out there. Use the promo code out there for free shipping on your next order. And now back to our conversation with Sarah Maslin Near. You are a horse person and you are also a reporter for The New York Times and I'm curious about the connection between those two identities. I mean, do you think it's an accident that you have these dual passions of horses and journalism? Or do you think there are certain personality traits that you have that lend themselves to both? I've never been asked that question in all of my interviews. So I love it. Good job. Let me <laughs> Let me think about it. Being with a horse requires speaking in horse, which is silence. Horses are nonverbal communicators. They communicate in a language of very specifically delineated gestures. And Communicating with them steeped in silence is very different than what I do as a reporter, which is verbally engaging with people. But I often say that interviewing is not a conversation. You are extracting something. It, it's very different than talking. And it requires a sort of quiet listening that allows the other person to fill a space. And that is similar to being with a horse in their deep, silence. I will tell you something really interesting. Horses really healed me through that silence. I was the victim of a knife attack that I write about in my book where a burglar climbed in through my window in my apartment in New York City and stabbed me while I was sleeping on Thanksgiving Day. And after that attack, I had what's called hypervigilance, a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder where you hear everything. I couldn't quiet the city down. I heard every air conditioner, every screeching car. It was incredibly loud. And that's the way that prey creatures hear the world. They're listening in case something attacks. And that's the way that horses relate to the world. And what healed me and what silenced the city again was being around those creatures who navigate the world in silence and yet somehow survive. So it's a very circuitous way of answering your question that both engaging with these animals and engaging and winning the trust of humans requires a depth of listening that you don't do in the outside world. What do you hope readers will take away from the book? My fervent hope is that readers understand that passion and the things that define us are our choice. I really dig deeply into the barriers that society puts up against participating in this world, these sports. With the black cowboys, we didn't get into this yet, but the uh, Indian 
horse riders who are stoned when lower caste people have the audacity to attempt to ride a horse to their wedding, sometimes killed. The jockeys, the wild horse owners, the plastic horse people, that all of them are part of this story and that how we define ourselves isn't up to other people. And I hope there's some solace in that. Horses have given me tremendous solace in my life and I hope this book does the same. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It was a delight uh, talking with you and, uh, and a delight to read your book. Thank you. It's really meaningful to me. And thank you for thinking of it for this. Sarah Maslin Near's book is called Horse Crazy. It comes out in paperback August 3rd. Special thanks to Cecily Moran for editing this episode and to Tiffany Duong for connecting us with Sarah. Coming up next time on Out There, we have a story about the tension between following our dreams and paying the bills. I'm a person who's very fixed on doing what you love um, and being happy about doing what you love um, or, or being happy about doing what you do, period. Tune in on August 12th to hear that story. A quick reminder that story pitches for our upcoming season are due tomorrow. The theme for the season is Things I Thought I Knew. We have all the details for how to pitch us at our website, outtherepodcast.com. Just click on the Contact tab. Also, if Out There brightens your day at all, consider making a financial contribution to the show. We are an independent production, which means we don't have a network or big corporate money behind us. In fact, about half of our operating budget comes from listeners just like you. The stories we run typically take months to put together, and we believe strongly that the writers and producers who create these stories should be compensated fairly. Help us pay our storytellers what they deserve by becoming a patron today. Just head over to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. In case you're not familiar with it, Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for creative endeavors. It lets you make monthly contributions to projects you care about, like this podcast. We have lots of great rewards for different pledge levels. For example, if you contribute $10 a month, you'll get a handwritten thank you card from me, a free Out There sticker, and 20% off all Out There merchandise. Check it out and become a patron today at patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash outtherepodcast. If you're new to Out There, check out the Best of Out There playlist. This is a collection of some of our favorite episodes of all time, And it's a great introduction to the range of stories we do on the show. 
You can find Best of Out There on Spotify and at our website, outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Kara Schaefer is our print content coordinator. Our interns are Malat Amha and Tanya Chavla. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>